0: All right. Today on the buttoned up podcast, we're joined by Mark Kohlenberg, founder of Moral Code, a footwear and leather accessories brand for guys. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. So you're a longtime entrepreneur. You've been kind of a veteran of the fashion industry, specifically a lot of experience with footwear. For those who don't know you, uh, tell us like where you grew up and how you end up slinging shoes?
1: Yeah, um, ironically, I grew up in Green Bay, Wisconsin, the, the fashion capital of the world. So, um, I, I had a very lower middle class, uh, background growing up. My dad was a plumber. Hmm. Um, and I saw him, I, I, you know, I would go with him at, at times on, uh, calls, service calls, uh, especially during the winter in Green Bay. You know, at times it was pretty cold. Yeah. And I saw him slogging water heaters up and down the stairs in the middle of winter and, you know, struggling with it. And, you know, pretty early on, I convinced myself this just isn't something that I want to do. So uh, even though when I grew up, the majority of uh, my classmates never went to college um, in, in high school. So, uh, you know, in Green Bay, you could work at a paper mill, get a union job and, you know, get all the toys, snowmobile and cottage, in, you know, a lake in northern Wisconsin and, you know, enjoy a middle class life. But um, I want to do something different. Went to college, got a degree, and uh, I've always been intrigued by business, but you know, kind of accidentally fell into the footwear side of it.
0: Uh, when you were younger, or even in, in your college days, were you interested in menswear? Like, it was a, was it a personal passion?
1: Um, I, I go back to that Green Bay upbringing, where you know a Packer sweatshirt is uh, <laughs> about the dressiest as, as people get. So, I, honestly, no. Um, in college, I you know I got interested in in clothing and looking good. I was always intrigued by brands. You know that that's really what drew me to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know ultimately, Allen Edmonds is a, a local company. I was living in Milwaukee at the time. And, uh, John Stolenwork was the owner. This was prior to any of the equity buyouts that started. And, J- and John really took that company extraordinarily from about 5 million and de- 5 million in sales, um, with a couple of partners and a few years later had it north of 100 million. So wow. um, I, I literally did an informational interview with John Stolenwork, and he looked at me, and he said, kid, I don't have anything for you here. But he, he, he had a dusty old cardboard box behind his desk uh, full of kid shoes. And he said, you know, a friend of mine in Germany is really looking for somebody to launch this brand in the United States. I'd be happy to make an introduction for you. So long story short, uh, they flew me out to Germany. I met with the management team, and we established a joint venture with alan edmonds and the german parent company and that that was really my entree into the footwear business so wow. um and it, it's been a really comfortable business to stay in so um it's easy you can kind of reinvent yourself every six months with a new season if something doesn't work you get another shot at it so uh, it's been a comfortable place to stay Yeah, it's really interesting and so like when is this is this right after college um, this is a couple of years after. So uh, when I graduated from the University of Wisconsin, the job market was terrible. Uh, the only jobs really available at the time were were retail. So the May Company, um, which was right after Macy's, really the second tier uh, executive training program, was recruiting at all the Big Ten schools. So they recruited me for their Kauffman's division. I spent a year out in Pittsburgh working for Kauffman's and learning the retail end of things, which, you know, honestly set the stage for the, the rest of my career because you really have to understand retail to get into the wholesale side and certainly the product development side.
0: Yeah. And and so your foray into the footwear market was with kids shoes.
1: It, it was with kids' shoes, but my office was in the middle of Allen Edmonds. Uh, my my product was a warehouse in the Allen Edmonds warehouse, you know, I reported to John Stolenwork, the CEO of Allen Edmonds. So, you know, I've had this um, experience where even though I wasn't on a day to day basis, I wasn't working directly with men's footwear. Um, every everything around me, literally everything around me, all the people around me were in the men's business, um, and and I even traveled and used some of the Allen Edmonds reps at the time to sell my product. So, okay. um, you know, I absorbed a lot that way.
0: Got it. And so you you were learning a lot about the leather then because that seems to be a kind of a specialty. Yeah.
1: Right. One, one of my uh, first days at Allen Edmonds, they sent me down to the Horween Tannery in Chicago on a nice hot July day and spent uh-huh. a day uh, in the middle of the tannery grading leather. Well, I had to take so, a couple
0: showers to get the, get that Yeah, off. It,
1: it, You know, it was kind of uh, sink or swim and, you know, it wasn't pleasant, but uh, I got through it. Nice. Yeah.
0: And and so, what happens after that?
1: I spent um, I spent about fifteen years with Alan Edmonds and grew the business with them into a pretty substantial business. Nordstrom was our key account, um, and we really you know blew out the product to all the Nordstrom stores in the country. Really set the stage for a premium uh, European sourced brand. Uh, we started doing to really grow the business. I I, I was butting my heads at the time. Um, with a a structure in Germany that said, you know, basically, this is a typical kind of a German way. This is our product, you know, go sell it. And at the end of the day, you know, we really realized, and and also through our work with Nordstrom that's very responsive to local needs and, you know, just a a local mix of product that, you know, the consumer in the United States wanted something a little bit different. So we started developing our own product. I started sourcing it on my own initially in Mexico um, and then supplementing that with a, a little bit of product out of Germany to kind of put the icing on the cake and it worked um, and we we expanded you know pretty substantially after that um, a few years later Clarks of England bought um, my parent company in Germany so um, that kind of changed things overnight. Um, and Clark's really was a terrific company. I learned a lot from them. At the time, they were producing the majority of men's and women's shoes for Clark's in Brazil, and they invited me to go down there and meet with some of their factories. And we click- quickly moved our production out of Mexico to Brazil, found a great factory for it there, and um, and and continued to grow the business. So at its peak, we were doing about 15 million in sales. And again, this is kids' shoes that cost about 50 bucks a pair. So you know, there's a lot of product going out into the market. Market And literally overnight, the business in Europe, um, was not healthy and Clark's just decided to close it down. So I I got a call one, one afternoon from my boss saying I was just fired. Keep your eyes open. And two or three days later, I got the same call. So Mm -hmm. I was, uh, even though, uh, it, it was frustrating. Our business was the most profitable of any export market in the world. Um, and uh, even Alan Edmonds at the time was interested in purchasing the business outright just due to its profitability. We were the largest export market outside of Germany. So I uh, I approached Clark's. I tried to buy the brand from them. Mm-hmm. Um, they really wouldn't entertain the offer. Uh, knocked on the door multiple times over about 10 days, and it became apparent they, they weren't interested for whatever reason. So I called my attorney and uh, we put together a group of investors and started our own brand in the identical space. So, um, you know, the market... Market was very supportive of me. You know, I, I had retailers in Nordstrom calling me and, and really asking me to fill the void since there was literally no warning. Um, and, and this happened in August when uh, autumn, winter shipments, back to school shipments were just going out. Mm-hmm. So they really needed somebody to fill that niche. So uh, I started a new brand. We called it UMI, U M um, I. Same sourcing. The factory in Brazil was very supportive of me and, and backed me. Um, without that help, it literally, nothing would have happened, uh, you know, just from a cash flow perspective. And we put together a group of investors uh, to raise money and started this new brand and and quickly grew that as well. Um, and I stayed with that for five or six years. The investors were really on a five-year cycle. They decided to sell it. And we sold it to the Waco Group, which is the Florsheim family mm-hmm. uh, business in Milwaukee, which was somewhat of a surprise simply because, you know, once again, they were entirely in the men's footwear business for years with brands like Florsheim and Nunbush and Stacey Adams. Um, they, they added bogs to that mix af- after they purchased Umi, and they brought me on to run Umi. And then we also started a new brand called Florsheim Kids, which are really takedowns of the men's Florsheim styles. Mm-hmm. So – I, I stayed on with Waco uh, for about six years, got bored again, um, and decided to leave and quickly connected with um, a, an owner of a factory in India uh, that was a third-generation business um, exclusively doing private label footwear for better-grade European brands like Echo and Mephisto, mm-hmm. Donald Pliner, uh a British brand called Loke, which is kind of the Allen Edmonds of the UK, if you're familiar with them. Yeah. Um, and after a few meetings, um, it became apparent they were looking to get a foothold in the United States and we came together and, uh, that's how this new business was born. Wow. Yeah.
0: Okay. And, and what, um, I guess what year was, so WDM was 2017, right? Or Moral Code was launched
1: 2017. Uh, WDM is just our, our kind of corporate umbrella. Uh, it was launched January, January of 2017. Yeah. Okay. And, and then Moral Code came along about six months later.
0: Okay, because at one point i 'm not sure where you were at this point, but at one point there's a big transition happening right from wholesale to e commerce
1: yeah we we always envisioned you know the, the Indian parent company and our ownership you know i think recognized at the time the danger of being in any private label production is. You know, if the factory down the highway, um, is offering a similar product for a dollar less a pair, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing to hold that relationship with, you know, the sourcing manager or the, the owner of that company. So they recognized that they were somewhat vulnerable and, and really needed to kind of shore up their business. So they wanted something a little more tangible, something that, something that they could control. So that was, you know, really the motivation for us starting moral code as a direct to consumer brand, even though we still yeah. do private label in the United States. States as well, got it. Okay, so you're kind of doing both. We do do both, and and honestly, um, with with the tariff situation um, that that Trump kind of brought into to play. You know six eight months ago mm. our private label businesses in you know, the phone's been kind of ringing off the hook uh, mm. we you know because we have such a competitive advantage being based in India we're vertically integrated so we we do everything ourselves we have our own tannery we have our own outsole factory we have our own leather accessory production mm. um, so you know it's it's really kind of a one-stop shop and uh, the the duties from India really have not been affected
0: yeah what are your thoughts on the the made in China and the made in India label, because obviously there's my my thoughts on it is that there's a little bit of a lag right now where made in China or made in India people still the, the quality is better than people think it is yeah um, and people still kind of value that made in Italy or made in the USA label when in fact a lot of brands can't can't get what they need in this country
1: yeah you know it's you know there there's a there's an objective argument and there's a subjective argument and and particularly in the United States you know oftentimes you see people you know I would say 50 plus that you know still are on this made in USA thing yeah. I, I don't think they really understand what goes into it and and footwear is a uniquely it footwear is very putsy you know just a, a you know a typical men's you know leather Dress shoe, you know, may have up upwards of fifty or seventy five different components that go, different pieces and components that go into a single shoe. So, and and oftentimes all those components come from you know distinct separate factories. You know, whether it's an an eyelet or a shoelace or an outsole or you know anything that goes into it. So you you not you it's not good enough just to have the production facility. You need an infrastructure of suppliers around you that are supplying you in real time with everything, all those ingredients that it takes to mix up the shoe and, and ultimately produce it. So China was very well suited for that, you know, 30 years of building up that infrastructure, you know, everything is there. It's, it's uh, you know, it's very, very efficient. India um, also has a, a long history in footwear. They don't have all the component suppliers close by. So Even with us, we do source at times, you know, some of our hardware pieces for accessories out of China just because they're not available locally. Um, but I think, you know, to a degree, India uh, and even other countries have gotten a bad rap uh, just in terms of, the, you know, that made-in label. And, you know, the perception, you know, especially in the D2C business, when I look at my competitive set, you know, I always say it's it's somewhat of a formula. When, when, when I hear about a new direct-to-consumer men's brand, it's an investment banker that just couldn't find a pair of shoes that he yeah. liked in the United States. Had because to cut out the
0: middleman. Exactly. <laughs> and
1: he's on vacation, to and then fill in the blank. It's either Spain or... it's portugal or it's italy and he found this wonderful factory and he's bringing it back as you said without the middleman so um you know that story's kind of old and it it just doesn't make a difference anymore so many products are made worldwide and they're starting to make iphones in india so you know the depending on what you're looking for and depending on the price category that you're playing in you know there are varying degrees of quality available anywhere so um you know i Prada was in our factory uh, a week and a half ago when I was in India visiting. So, you know, I can tell you that, you know, even the couture brands, you know, spend time in those factories and consider production. It just all depends on the commitment the factory is making to quality and uh, materials. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So
0: uh, one of the things that uh, you've been known to say is that the, the industry, the menswear industry has changed more in the last 12 months than the last 10 years or yeah. 20 years even. Yeah. So uh, how, how so?
1: I, there's two primary reasons. The first reason is the casualization of men's footwear. So, um, you know, it's it's been going on, for you know, I would say for five or six years. But once the investment banks announced, you know, roughly a year ago that they were relaxing their dress codes and, and you know, I think Goldman Sachs announced it first and, mm-hmm. you know, three or four others within the next days, you know, followed very quickly. Um, you know, I, I happened to be in the city when that announcement was made. I was meeting with the department store here um, with a buyer that bought both footwear and, and accepted. And the look on her face when she heard this, it was like, oh, my God, you know, I I have this huge amount of inventory. I have these receipts coming in for the next season. You know, so what am I going to do? And I think, you know, the industry had to respond almost overnight to that change. So we saw very quickly an influx of of sneakers, and you know, just a, a very very rapid move away from you know traditional dress shoes and um, into more casual footwear, and and it, at least for us, you know, we were already making leather sneakers, we were already making you know, Chucka boots and 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 more casual footwear. But for brands that really had their whole identity wrapped up in dress footwear, um, it's a problem. It's really a problem because I, I don't think the genie's going back in the bottle.
0: I agree. Yeah. I I think uh, that's a trend that's here to stay and I think all offices – I mean the investment bank, that's that's kind of the the classically formal office. Um, So everything else is just trickling down from that. Mm -hmm. Um, It it seems like though with with things getting more casual, like brands kind of have a couple of options because either you can add uh, specifically casual shoes to Mm -hmm. your lineups. You can add sneakers and offer those alongside of dress shoes. Or some brands like think like Kohan are mm-hmm. trying to do sort of more hybrid options mm-hmm. so it 's kind of a dress shoe, but it kind of has a sneaker sole or, right. or maybe it 's a more comfortable dress shoe so What are your thoughts on on which direction to go?
1: I I would say all the above. You know, we we comfort is a key factor, and and especially when you're, you know, when your customer is is under, I would say, thirty five years old. You know, these are guys that grew up wearing sneakers. You know, it was part of their uniform. They didn't wear, you know, leather shoes to school as a kid growing up. It was one hundred percent sneakers. So when you're when you're asking somebody, as an example, that's graduating from college or law school or med school or whatever, to go from you know their entire life of wearing a comfort focused product to putting on a leather sold Goodyear to dress shoe, you know, it's, it's like putting their shoe in a, or putting their foot in a wooden box, yeah. you know, they may do it once, but they're not going to go back there. So, um, that customer, I, th- I think Cole Haan's being very responsive to that customer, you know, with, with comfort and, you know, somewhat of a hybrid product that, you know, provides the comfort, you know, almost provides that sneaker look, but the upper is more dress focused. So, you know, you can get by wearing it at work. Um, the other thing I was going to mention, you know, just in terms of change, rapid change has been, and, and this honestly has been the last six, seven months, has just been the integration of sustainable materials, you know, mm. in, into footwear. And that's not just men's, it's, it's women's, it's kids um and you see it in apparel you see you really see it across the board in all products so yeah. um we have been diligently carefully watching that uh we have a couple of different products with varying degrees of sustainable materials um in process right now we hope to introduce you know kind of the first tier of that in mid spring and then the second tier for autumn winter 20 um but that's it's also in, in my opinion it's a game changer now i don't know I don't know necessarily if that's going to differentiate one brand from the other, but I, again, if you look at anybody under the age of 30, I do think, you know, fast forward a year or two, it's going to be a box that has to be checked. Mm. You know, it's just going to be an expectation of the consumer that the sourcing of that product is ethical.
0: Interesting. So you think that. Um, it's something that you sort of have to do as a brand right now. You have to consider it as a brand. I mean, of course, there are certain brands like your Everlane, right. of the world, they're building their entire company around exactly. it, around that idea or that consumer. Yeah. But you know, there's always going to be – Your your guy who wants a just leather dress shoe, right? Who doesn't really care about the other stuff?
1: Yeah, but but you know we I I I don't think leather is going away, and Mm. and I think you know part of this honestly is rooted in beyond meat. You know, there's this whole conversation going on right now about Mm. you know what we put in our bodies, and you know is is meat healthy or not? So you know I I don't think you can bury your head in the sand and. And think in 10 years the perception of of meat or the perception of leather or, or frankly you know anything is is going to be the same as it is today on the other hand you know I have a very strong opinion I was just we were in a marketing meeting yesterday and you know somebody used the word vegan leather mm. and you know you know my blood pressure just shoots up and you know I shouted out you know that's not leather at all it's plastic you know okay. it's going to be in a landfill a thousand years from now so you know I you know there's it's somewhat of the why. Wild West. When you talk about sustainable materials, because there's there's no standards, there's there's no rules. Everybody has a different vision of it than than the next person down the block. And at the you know at the end of the day, I think everyone's intentions are good. But this whole movement, <laughs> I'm on my soapbox here, but this whole movement towards vegan leather, it's it, you know it's plastic. So yeah. you know I, I I think the consumer at times thinks they're doing something good, but you'd be better off buying a leather shoe at least over time. You know it. It's going to regenerate and into the earth. The plastic isn't going to do that.
0: Yeah, it's a bit of a an oxymoron. The, the yeah. term vegan leather. It's right. kind of like saying vegan chicken. It's, yeah. It doesn't exist,
1: right? Precisely. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. And then the, and the other terms around are like recyclable. I think like you're saying is there's, there's so much uh, confusion around what it actually means because right. there's no universal definition. There isn't. So yeah. brands are kind of throwing it around right now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think Everlane's done really done a terrific job. They take it very seriously. They're very careful. But uh, but other brands, all it is is a marketing term. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Cool. So for you guys, if you are checking that box, like, you know, what, what percentage of your products, I guess, would be, is it kind of like that's a specific line that's focused on more sustainable materials or you're kind of weaving that throughout the brand?
1: We're, we're weaving it. It's not, um, It's not particularly easy, um, especially doing it, you know, fairly rapidly. Um, You know, we we have advantages because we have our own tannery. So everything is under our roof. We do everything ourselves. So we're not contracting that out to somebody else, but. You know, at the end of the day, we, we want to make sure that there's substance behind it. You know, we, we want to make sure that we have all the certifications and accreditations and endorsements. We, we want to do it the right way. And if it takes a little bit longer to do that, that's fine. And I'll, I'll just, I'll give a nod to a competitor, you know, Ryan at Greats. You know, I saw you posted yesterday that, you know, although Greats isn't sustainable, um, you know, you have to look at it from a different perspective as well. You know, when you buy, generally when you buy a quality product, you get longevity out of it. So, you know, regardless of something sustainable, if, you know, if it's either wearing out or falling apart or becoming unfashionable and you're tossing it in a landfill after a few weeks or a few months, you're better off buying a longer wearing product that is not often, you know, as often replaced that there's some longevity to it. So I, I right. you know, it's, it's a good perspective to have in this whole sustainable argument. Agreed.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's why if if you do buy something that's not only high quality, but also somewhat timeless design, which obviously there's no real timeless products. But uh, if you can wear a shoe for five years, get it resold and get another five years out of it. That's a sustainable uh, behavior, right? Right versus buying something new from H and M every year.
1: Yeah, and and we kind of had an epiphany, you know, in the marketing meeting that I just mentioned. But you know, the whole concept of Goodyear welted footwear. You know, most people, you know, they may have heard the term, they really don't understand what it is. But you know, it enables you to either the 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 origin of the footwear, the factory that made it, or a cobbler to literally take the outsole off and replace it. You can you can wear that shoe till you're a hundred years old. So you know, even though it it's it's made of leather and it's a dress shoe. You know, at, at times they, it can be a casual boot, but it, it's something that you know it has a life of a hundred plus years. Really, if you want it to, versus the majority of footwear in the country, which is cemented construction, which it's impossible to to redo. So it does end up in a landfill.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Goodyear well because I want to ask you about some of these terms that are sure. you know in footwear that. Um, I think are kind of confusing, and and you know maybe there's um you could offer some clarity as someone who's been in yeah. the business for a while. So Goodyear Welt is one of them, and, and different types of construction because there's a lot of um especially in the like men's fashion internet culture, like yeah. on Reddit, and there's a lot of people who simply won't buy anything that's not Goodyear Welt. Yeah, and. The vast majority of men will never go to a cobbler. They'll never get right. a pair of shoes. If you can, can find a cobbler. If you can find one, yeah. yeah. And, and and even if you have one down the street, you know, most guys just aren't wearing their Gucci Weld shoes that right. much. You, know, right. you have your pockets, your boot enthusiasts who are, you know, really wearing their, their stuff for decades. Um but people really, really want Goodyear Welded shoes. Yeah. So I mean, what are your thoughts? Is, is it worth it or are these other – you know, Blake Rapid, like are these other construction methods, uh, if you can save maybe a little bit of money and a little bit of weight off your shoe, yeah. are they just as good?
1: Yeah. I, I, Goodyear Welt is the pinnacle. You know, it, it really, there, there's nothing that even comes close. So and, – and, you know, the concept not – you know, it's not advantageous only for wearability. It's also comfort. It's flexibility. Um, you know, it, it's checking a number of different boxes. So, um, you know, that's. I, I think the industry as a whole has done a really poor job of educating the consumer to the, you know, the advantages of Goodyear welting. Now, you know, most people think of it just in terms of a dress shoe with a leather bottom. You know, I'd, I'd never wear that or something my grandfather wore. So we're actually launching a new direct-to-consumer brand this mm-hmm. summer, um, and it's called Milwaukee Boot Company. Mm-hmm. And we're making almost, I, I think, 90% of the collection is Goodyear welted. Boots, but the, these are these are gritty Milwaukee boots. You know, Milwaukee has a great history. If you go back a hundred years, of really being one of the shoemaking capitals of the United States. There's tanneries, there are shoe factories. A lot of these buildings are still standing. So we're you are kind of taking that authenticity and grittiness, you know, into the product, but the. These boots, you know, it, it would be in the same genre as a Red Wing or a Thoroughgood or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. But, you know, most people wouldn't think those are Goodyear welted product. They are. So, you know, they have all the advantages, but they don't have a, a you know, a look and a feel of an, you know, an Allen Edmonds as an example that's, you know, a traditional dress shoe with a, a leather outsole and a Goodyear welt.
0: Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a believer in, in, the, in the Goodyear welt for sure, especially on, on boots or, yeah. or anything if you're going to wear it in a city that gets some rain and some snow. Right. I mean, you can really wear, um, that type of shoe in the snow. And yeah. It's not great for the leather, but your feet will stay dry. Absolutely. You
1: know? Yeah. 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 So, it, it, you know, in, in terms of the other types of constructions, it, and, and I think that's, that's also one thing that really differentiates a true shoemaker from, A contracted factory, so you know the rest of the shoes. The majority of the rest of the shoes made in the country, made for sale in the United States, are cemented footwear. As far as sneakers, a lot of them are vulcanized footwear, which is basically. Popping an upper and an outsole in a giant oven and baking them and the outsole adheres to the upper through that vulcanization process. But everything else is cemented and, and, and there's certainly nothing wrong with cemented shoes. You know, we make a lot of them, but you know, again, in terms of a, a, a minor bump up in price, you know, you're, you're really getting an investment for life in a Goodyear welted product. And, and in my opinion, also comfort. So, you know, I think that's part of the deal as well. Sure.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. Another term that gets thrown around a lot is handcrafted, oh made God. by hand.
1: You're reading my mind. So, uh, referencing this marketing meeting again yesterday, you know, somebody brought that up as well, and I just said, "You know, I've heard it a thousand times. It's meaningless after a while." The the one thing I can tell you, a hundred percent of the shoes that. Anybody buys at any price point. I don't care if you're going to the dollar store or Walmart. They're all made by hand. Okay. Right. <laughs> so shoes are, as I said before, it's a very putsy process. It's a very time consuming process. Um, there's very little automation in shoemaking. So I don't care if, you know, if you're in Allen Edmonds or, you know, you're selling a $9.99 shoe, you know, at a dollar store. They're all made by hand. So using the term handcrafted again. In my opinion, is almost meaningless because everything is handcrafted. Right, so even those cemented shoes that you yeah. get at Walmart are made by hand, technically, right? Yeah, they're plastic uppers, but they're they're still made by hand. So um, yeah. you know it, it, you. It, in general terms, you get what you pay for. So, you know, it doesn't take that much of a discerning eye to to tell the difference between a cheap product and, and something that's well-constructed and, you know, is using top-notch materials and has a point of difference. You know, I think, you know, footwear, particularly for men that, you know, I think really lag behind women in terms of fashion awareness and self-expression – footwear is is one of those areas it's a little bit easier than clothing because number one it's an accessory and number two you know particularly if you if there's either a written or unwritten dress code at work footwear is one area that's it's it's kind of a gray area so you can kind of play around with it a little bit and and just use it to you know kind of you know self express as i said so um, it's easier for men
0: yeah now as as someone who's been in the industry since pre e-commerce, pre direct-to-consumer days. Prehistoric, then- <laughs> yeah, I understand. <laughs> I didn't say that for the record. <laughs> uh, but how how are you getting the word out now? You know, because you are an internet uh, direct consumer yeah. company. So what are you doing to make people aware of Moral Code?
1: Um, and a number of different things. Um, you know, we we're a fairly regular advertiser in Esquire, both online and digital. Uh, you know, we've, we've done some stuff with GQ as well. You know, trying to really. You know, capture the fashion end of the market. And as you said, there's, you know, there's a pretty tight group of guys out there online that, you know, I swear some of them know more about footwear than me. And, you know, they haven't really even been in the business. So, um, so you really want to get their attention and, um, you know, get their approval, you know, to a degree. And, and then we're active on any number of the, the bulletin boards or blogs that are going out there, email blasts. So, you know, we've done a lot with gear patrol, with uncrate, um, Valet. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it's pretty targeted stuff. And then we just use paid search as well, you know, to really kind of capture the specific niches where, you know, we can kind of own that product category.
0: Got it. Yeah. And when you're doing, when you're working with these digital media publishers, yeah. are you, Really, just doing brand building, or are you looking at every dollar spent and seeing what comes back from a specific campaign?
1: A little bit of each, you know. I think, you know, you know, the whole D to C world still is, you know, untamed. So, you know, it seems like every week there's a new brand that's, you know, introducing themselves and trying to take some share from the guys that have ar- excuse me already been there, yeah. but. um, you you need brand awareness. Brand awareness is not something you invest in once and it, it magically goes away. You have to keep on maintaining that brand awareness out there or that new customer that may not have been in the market, you know, a week ago or yesterday, suddenly he is today, mm-hmm. you know, really how are you going to make them aware of your brand? So, um, you know, we, one thing we were quite careful of is the whole influencer business, you know, the celebrity end of things. Um, you know, that I think has gotten a bit out of hand and, you know, there, there's a whole market of people that just want a lot of free products. So we're pretty discerning when it comes to, um, who gets the product and, you know, and, and really, you know, what they can do, you know, with that product, you know, a win for them and a win for us. Sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah I, I've, I've had some experience with that on the other end. And yeah. um, it's, I feel like with influencer marketing, it's, uh, it's hard to scale a little bit. Mm-hmm. And because it kind of like smaller influencers, um, and there's all these terms now, micro influencers, right, stuff, right. But they're very effective. They have a lot of engagement, but yeah. they're also smaller. So right. to really do a, a campaign properly,
1: you'd need hundreds, you know. And and, and, and the, I think the, the the key thing is conversion. You know, at, right. at the end of the day, you know, regardless of the amount of eyeballs on it, you know, are people actually engaging with the product and, and you know most importantly, are they purchasing the product? So right. the, the proof is in the pudding.
0: Yeah, especially men too, because I feel like um you know guys in general aren't really shopping Instagram as much right now. Uh, shopping online for sure, right? Um, but and even shopping online, I mean, shoes are a little bit easier, but you still have the sizing issue to deal with.
1: You do. So you you do. want
0: you want people to hopefully get their size right that with that first order, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think w- without the, you know, free shipping and free returns, you know, the, the D2C business and footwear wouldn't be around, you know, because, yeah. it, again, there's no standardization between brands. You know, it's like, you know, it's like buying a pair of jeans. You know, one brand is going to fit you different than the other brand. So okay. you need to have that flexibility. And, and you know, we, we do see in footwear a higher return rate than I think you, you would see in other categories of D2C shopping.
0: And are you doing anything to try to get that return rate down?
1: Always, you know, it's it's an expensive proposition. Men's shoes are big and heavy and clunky, and you know it's expensive to just mindlessly, you know, ship shoes around the country, you know, for nothing. So, you know, I think reviews are helpful. You know, where you have real consumers commenting on the fit characteristics of a product and mm-hmm. whether to go up a half size or down a half size, and and ultimately, the more content that we, you know, as a brand and and you know producer of those shoes, put in the content. Online, in terms of you know the last that we're using, the outsole we're using, and and generally just those fit characteristics, the the more complete we can tell that story, you know, that return rate should go down.
0: Yeah, it's like I feel like a lot of brands don't put enough on the product page, the yeah. actual product page, and even even if it's just text description, right. Um, Or like you said, reviewers can kind of um,
1: talk about their experience with the sizing versus other brands. It's so helpful. Yeah, absolutely, And, and and that's really kind of where Amazon kills it. You know, just from the review standpoint, because you know for most products on Amazon, you can really find you know a robust amount of reviews to help you with the sizing or characteristics of the product.
0: Now, can people find any moral code products on Amazon?
1: They can, yeah. Um, you know, we have we've had mixed results on Amazon. Uh, we initially started with both the footwear and the accessories. We found, the, uh, honestly, the traction for the footwear was much stronger. So that's really the focus moving forward. Uh, but we do have a sizable Amazon business, and you know, at the end of the day, you know what, a, you know, a couple hundred million customers with Prime, you can't ignore that. So yeah. you know, you have to have the product available to them. But it's it's all regular price. We're running the business ourselves and, um, you know, I, I don't think it's diluting the brand. Got it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So speaking of the brand, like how, how do you want people to feel
1: about Moral Code versus Alan Edmonds? Like who, who is the Moral Code guy? That's the big question. And that was really the root of this marketing meeting that we were in yesterday. So, um, you know, moral code has been, um, you know, it's still a baby. It's only been around for two years, but with, you know, with the, the massive change in the dress shoe business. And that's really how we came to market as an alternative to Allen Edmonds, you know, all the same quality, all the same fit, all the same materials, you know, for roughly half the price. But that, that market is, is really turned upside down. So we're trying to figure out a way, even though we're, we're just two years old to, you know, really pivot the brand to be responsive to the, the market today and include sustainability. I think that's going to be a big part of it. Uh, We want to lean into our name, which we've never done before. You know, when I'm, you know, flying around all the time, which I, I seem to do every week, The first question people ask me on a plane is, what does that mean? What does moral code mean? You know, why would you choose that name? And I've really never had a good response for them because it's up until this point, it has only been a name of a brand, but it means something. And again, with, you know, this kind of polarized political environment that we're in as a country right now, we want, we want to lean into that name. We want that name to stand for something. And even if it pisses some people off, that's okay. But I think, I think companies and brands and corporations need to take, uh, a higher level of interest in what's going on in the country, taking positions, saying what's right and saying what's wrong, at least from their perspective. So, you know, in the months to come, I think you'll see moral code a little more active on, in the political discussion area, um, also on issues of sustainability. We're produced in India. And just as an example, you know, we're one of the few footwear factories you know, that really, I think, does an extraordinary job with workers' rights and worker safety and, um, you know, frankly, you know, providing an environment that the shoes are made that anyone would be comfortable in. And and I've had at times the unpleasant experience. You know, I, I've been in hundreds and hundreds of shoe factories in my life all over, you know, China and Vietnam and Indonesia and, you know, Brazil, God knows where else, Mexico um, and India – and I really would put our factory, you know, in the top one or two. So, um, you know, we're doing a great job at it. And I think part of it is we produce for a lot of European brands who have very, very strict standards in terms of, you know, humane treatment of their employees, humane treatment of the animals, you know, all environmental regulations. So, you know, once again, we're checking all those boxes. We have all those certifications, but, you know, we, we need to tell that story better because frankly, we're not telling it at all right now. So that'll be part of it moving forward too
0: i think that's a good idea because even brands that aren't like like everland for example specifically yeah. focused on that part of their story all brands seem to want to brag about their factory and right. their conditions if they can and that's why you see these days on, on an about page you might see pictures of the factory mm-hmm. on product page you might even see um listings about where the components of, of a right. product came from exactly which you never
1: used to see right
0: you know like like zipper brands right. are kind of common knowledge now which yeah. is pretty wild
1: ykk has a brand everywhere right absolutely yeah <laughs> we, we you know there
0: are zipper snobs on the internet now. <laughs> that didn't exist a few years ago it's a little frightening actually uh speaking speaking of snobs we have to talk sneakers real quick because yeah. we were talking about this um out in the waiting room uh you know that you have uh this like crazy trend going out with, with leather mm. sneakers minimal leather sneakers right and there's always been a, a group that That loved this style of shoe, specifically the Common Projects Achilles Low, and now you can get that kind of silhouette and aesthetic at any price point. Correct. So you have your sub fifties from you know H and M, then Mm -hmm. you have like your New Republics, obviously Adidas, Stan Smith, and those. And then I think it gets really interesting in in the you know hundred to two fifty range. Back at Seminin, you guys, a lot of other brands, and then you have your designer stuff, your Gucci's and your Common Projects.
1: Do you think there's where is that point of diminishing returns? god no uh it, it's tough to say there are so many people in that category right now just because i think you know on the one hand it's 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 by far the easiest product category to merge into, to kind of address that casualization of men's footwear. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, whether you like it or not, everybody's got a sneaker in their closet from somebody. So, you know, in terms of transitioning product from a, a, a dress-focused you know piece of footwear into something more casual, a leather sneaker is is, is like the the path of least resistance. Yeah. So, and and as you said, you know, there's such a wide range of price points out there. But you know, in my opinion, at the end of of the day the products are all pretty similar, you know the the differences you're going to see is really the quality of materials that they're using and the workmanship that goes into it. So, mm-hmm. um, you know we we play heavily into that category. Sneakers are probably the fastest growing piece of our business, mm-hmm. but you know you you have to kind of chart your own path because you just don't want to copy everybody else that's been out there. So, um, you know as I mentioned to you, you know I went to the opening of the Nordstrom men's store in Manhattan um, a little over a year ago and it it seemed like you know there are probably fifty different choices of white leather dress sneakers all all next to each other on display you know from common projects all the way down to probably something you know under a hundred dollars retail but you know unless the consumer is specifically shopping by brand and knows what they want. I, I don't think the minor differences in product are, are really going to be a game changer for anybody. You know, the, you know, moving forward, I do think materials are going to have a, a point of difference, and that's that's really providing something, you know, for the consumer that they can, you know, identify something, you know, that is a material difference in the product. So right. whether it's, a you know, more sustainable leather or um, footbed or linings or something along those lines, you know, th- that's the direction it has to go. Got it. But the
0: sneaker trend is something that Moral Code is leaning into.
1: Yeah, we are. And, and our hope is, um, honestly, to establish a unisex sneaker. We found um, the, the data that we have is already more than 30% of, of the consumers buying product online from Moral Code are women. So either mm. you know, buying for a boyfriend or a significant other or a husband. So, you know, sneakers you know, are also you know perfect category to really try to offer something to a woman shopper uh, simply. Because the product is is fairly universal.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. You have a lot of brand, a lot of really popular um, casual shoes like you know vans canvas sneakers mm-hmm. and uh, even like Jake has a chukka boot called the McAllister that's offered in a kind of unisex sizing scale, yeah. which I think is really helpful. Yeah. Um, also for people who need like smaller or larger sizes, absolutely. For yeah. Gender, you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Agree. Agree. Yeah, very yeah. cool.
0: Well, we we do a series of rapid fire questions here. Okay. Um, that you can't prepare for, but if you're down. <laughs> We'll jump into those.
1: Okay. I'm ready.
0: All right. Cool. Oxfords or brogues? I like brogues. Brogues. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, Loafers or sneakers? Sneakers. Nice. Uh, Spring, summer, or fall, winter? Fall,
1: winter, every day.
0: Wow, yeah. and that and that's a Wisconsin answer.
1: Well, it's, <laughs> it, it, I think it's the market overall because you know the, the spring summer business, you know, with traditional footwear brands, it's pretty light. You know, the majority mm-hmm. of sales are done in autumn winter season. Generally, it's a higher value season. People are willing to spend more money, and there's longevity. You know, those sales start in July and they really run through the holidays. So, you know, I, I'm all in on autumn winter.
0: Totally, yeah. yeah. Well, plus you you can wear boots in the summer, but you, you can. can't really
1: wear boat shoes in the winter. Absolutely, you know? or sandals.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, jeans, chinos, or trousers? Jeans. Okay. Uh, favorite Bond actor, if you have one?
1: Uh, Daniel Craig. Uh, nice.
0: Notch lapels or peak lapels?
1: Ah, uh, uh, neither.
0: I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're wearing notch today, so yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah. Um, navy or charcoal,
1: if you gotta pick one suit? Uh, charcoal. Charcoal. Okay.
0: And then if, if you got a big day, what show, what, what song are you listening to in the shower to get pumped up?
1: Oh man, that's a tough one. Uh, I, you know, this morning I was up at 4 a.m., so believe me, it was no song at all.
0: Just coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, literally.
1: Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm running a the blank there. Ah, fair enough. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, this has been great. Um, wh- what are you really excited about for the next, you know, six to 12 months with Moral Code?
1: Yeah, we, we you know, um, we got so many things, you know, upcoming now. So, you know, number one, sustainable materials. Number two, you know, more sneakers and casual shoes. We're really juiced about Milwaukee Boot Company. We just opened a retail store in Milwaukee, you know, under that brand name. Um, and it's, it's going to be a gritty, authentic brand. So, um, I'm just in, in the midst of working on the product development for the final, uh, product that will be released, you know, on a direct-to-consumer website, you know, I'm thinking probably in late May. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we just – the, the cool thing about the shoe business is every six months, again, you, you got a new shot at it. It's a new at-bat. So um we're constantly kind of juggling three seasons at the same time. And, you know, you know I'm already working on spring-summer 21. So right. uh, we got a lot of irons in the fire, but a lot of cool stuff coming up.
0: Nice. And what will those boots start at, just out of curiosity?
1: Um, nothing is finalized, but I would think um, you know probably opening price point would be about 140 Nothing wow. over nothing over 200 bucks. Wow. And, and those will be Goodyear welt? Um, the majority of them. I'd say 90%. I, I think we're doing uh, two styles that are not Goodyear welted, but the vast majority are Goodyear welt. It's a pretty tight collection, but you know we want to start small. And then we'll have two accessories, a messenger bag, and a backpack as well. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, if people want to learn more about you, where should they go? LinkedIn. Use it heavily. So, uh, LinkedIn or uh, moralcode.com or uh, WDM.com or now MilwaukeeBoot.com as well. Great. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. It's great being here.